All right. So, <clears throat> small beginnings. When I think of a small beginning, that's what we're going to talk about today, I think of when that little green shoot pokes up out of the earth and puts out its leaves and it's in the sun for the first time and it's just this vulnerable little sprout. That's what I think of with a small beginning. But I want to walk it back even further from that. That's why I made the word small a progression up to beginning. Because there are some steps and some things that take place before that little shoot, that vulnerable thing, even breaks the ground. It has to germinate. That seed has to germinate in this dark, isolated, secret vulnerable place where no one else can see it. If it's ever even going to be a small beginning, that's where it has to start. So we're going to work back from and go from there today. So the term small beginnings, this is a familiar biblical term for us, and it comes from a specific verse, which is Zechariah 4.10. This is in the New Living Translation. It says, do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. The seven lamps represent the eyes of the Lord that search all around the world. Before I begin to talk about the small beginnings, I want to give you a little bit of context for this whole story. So the book of Zechariah is set in the time that the first group of Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity under the decree of the Persian king Cyrus. And upon their return, they begin rebuilding the temple foundations. Now, Zechariah is part of a larger story, and this story is covered in four books. It's covered in Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah. And just as a side note, the books of Esther and Malachi take place at the same time chronologically. They're just about different things. So over the course of this story, three waves of exiles return from captivity to Jerusalem. And as I studied this out, I ended up in a rabbit hole like I usually do about chronological timelines and contemporaries and Ezra and Nehemiah being in the same place together and when were they separate and all those things that really don't matter. But I wanted to give you even more context. So I started Googling, explain this to me like I'm five. It's basically what I was looking for. And I came across this helpful picture that hopefully you can see that looks like it was made for children, which is what makes it helpful. So you can see here, up here, you have like the titles of the Persian kings that were during this time. There's Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes. And this right here represents the first wave of exiles that returned with Zerubbabel. This is detailed in Ezra 1 through 6. And this is where the building project of the temple begins. They lay the foundations here, and then because of the opposition, there's a little guy right here, and he's saying, hey, they can't do that. Because of the opposition, there's an interruption. So the foundation is laid, and then there's a break before the temple is actually finished. So this is the first wave of exiles. This is the second wave. And during this time, Ezra refreshes the people's memory about what the law says. He draws, he calls them back to devotion to the Lord. And then the third wave of exiles comes with Nehemiah. And that's where Nehemiah rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days with the power of the Spirit and the help of the people. So that's kind of a general 
idea of the whole big story that takes place over a long time. There's different characters and leaders, there's different building projects that are all a part of the story, but there are major themes that are really dominant in this story, and one of them is opposition. Small beginnings, uh, pressing forward even when things are unimpressive in the power of the Lord. There's, this story just teaches and teaches. As I was going through it, I was, I'm just like, wow, there's so much that we can draw from this. So to get into the story, we're going to use um, the book of Ezra. And we're going to start here in the first chapter. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a free will offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. So the first thing to, I want to point out here is right in verse 1. It says that in this first year of King Cyrus, something happened. He issued this proclamation to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah. So this is a bit of context that we can look into. What word that was spoken by Jeremiah is being fulfilled here? So Jeremiah prophesied that after 70 years in Babylonian captivity, that God would punish Babylon and that he would bring his people out. And he does this. He uses uh, the kingdom of Persia, and they, uh, they conquer the kingdom of Babylon. And the year after they conquer Babylon, uh, Cyrus issues this decree to uh, let the Jewish people go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And then here in verse 4, you see that it says, let every survivor go back, and the men in the region that are there, as those people leave, give them gifts to take with them. Now think about that. What context does that remind you of? What's being uploaded here? It's, it's the first exodus when God called his people out of Egypt. And when they left Egypt, they took the treasures of the people of Egypt with them. God caused them to be given those treasures, and they took it with them. And also, Cyrus gave back the treasures that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, had taken from the temple. So the people are being given all of this stuff, and we're uploading that whole Exodus story. God is doing something here. He's calling his people out. This theme of redemption and restoration is, there's a seed here that's starting to play out. Like our ears should really be perking up at these major biblical themes. Not only that, but he's calling them back to Jerusalem to rebuild his house to rebuild the temple. And that's the place where God and man have contact on earth. That's where God and man fellowship during this time. And that is a call back even further. Where did God and man first have fellowship together? That was in Eden. So, wow, a restoration theme is being activated, a redemption theme, God calling his people out, like big things, God is doing something. So we're getting excited as we're reading this story. 
how are the people going to respond to this thing that God is doing? Well, look at that right here in verse 5, the very next verse. It says, So the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had roused, prepared to go up and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. So all who the Lord's spirit had roused. This word roused here, it means awaken. The people at one time were asleep, so to speak, or it wasn't time for this particular purpose of God. But when it was time and he prompted them, they were roused to it. They came awake. Some other translations say that the spirit stirred the people to respond to God. And the same word is used in talking about Cyrus. He was roused. He was stirred by the Lord to issue this favorable decree to send the Jews back to Jerusalem. We often pray that the Lord would stir us up. We pray that a lot. Lord, stir us up. Rouse us. Awaken us to your purposes and what you're doing. So the people had to come awake to what God was doing to be in cooperation with him, to be a part of what he was doing. They had to respond to that stirring just the same as we have to respond to it today. And some of them did. It says it here. People prepared to go up to Jerusalem to rebuild the Lord's house. Some of them responded, and some did not. Josephus, he is a well-known historian and Jewish writer. He writes all about Jewish history. And this is what he says about the exiles during this time. When Cyrus had said this to the Israelites, this favorable proclamation, the rulers of the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin with the Levites and priests went in haste to Jerusalem, yet did many of them stay at Babylon as not willing to leave their possessions. So when the people were faced with this stirring, this prompting of the Spirit, people were exposed. When the Spirit rouses God's people, there's only two answers to that stirring. There's a yes and there's a no. And even when the Spirit prompts us and we say, wait a second, but I just bought a field. Can I go look at it? Or I have to go bury my dead? That's just a no in disguise. It's either a yes or a no. So the people were exposed. The first generation of exiles that had been in Jerusalem and had been taken into captivity, they had died. And it seems that a lot of the longing for the things of the Lord and the longing for the house of the Lord and for Jerusalem had died along with them. It was a dangerous journey back to Jerusalem. And when they got there, if they got there, it's just ruins. Like you're taking this dangerous journey just to work and rebuild this whole city. There's nothing there. There's not the comforts of Babylon there for you. So the people had come to see less than God's best as comfortable and secure. They were comfortable in their captivity because it was familiar to them. This is also a theme that plays out with the Jewish people. Wanting to go back to captivity, wanting to stay in captivity. And there's really a great nugget in this for us. More than a nugget. Because familiarity can hold us back from responding to God if we let it. We can become familiar with all kinds of things. Some of those things are just stuff that's not what God wants for us. And some of those things are plain destructive Did you know that people can become familiar with being sick? 
And I don't mean that in like a harsh, judgmental way, like everyone who's experiencing and struggling with illness, you just say, well, it must just be the way you want it. That's not the case at all. But it's something, it's not something people think consciously, but it's a subconscious thing that can keep us in this rut because it's become familiar. If that's what you've known for most of your life, then it almost becomes like a safe zone for you, even though it's miserable. People can become familiar with being a victim, continually entering into patterns where they're always victimized. That can become something that at least you understand to some degree. It's familiar to you. It feels safe. Being afraid, that is a big familiarity rut because fear gives us the illusion of control. We feel like if we're vigilant enough in our fear that we will be able to foresee bad things before they happen and then we can put a stop to it. But that is just an illusion. We really do not have that degree of control. Also, people can become plain addicted and familiar with living in chaos. Just completely addicted to struggle and drama. They don't know how to live their lives with any kind of stability because this is maybe all they've ever known for generations is just struggle and drama and chaos. And it just becomes this familiarity rut. No matter how bad it is, at least it's what I know. And it's better than what I don't know. As human beings, we really like to avoid what is unknown to us. It can be really scary, but going with God into something he's rousing us to is an act of faith. It's going to involve the unknown, which we like to avoid. Rebuilding the house of God sounds like a pretty sweet deal. We're talking about the Jewish people here. The house of the Lord in Jerusalem were central to their identity. It was like their heart's cry. I don't think we totally understand that the same way that they did. So to be offered this opportunity to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of the Lord, you would think, it's like your reason for living. Why would you not want to do that? Why would this be so powerful over you? Now think of us as Christians. If someone offers to you, come and build the house of the Lord. That sounds like a sweet deal. We often look at other Christians who are you know, doing things for the Lord, hearing his voice and moving on that, and it, you know, it, it's desirable to us and inspires us because we see something of worth in it. But at the same time, you have to understand that to go with God, you have to put your foot out to take a step onto something that looks like it can't support you. It looks like there's nothing there, but you have to take that step. Those that went back to Jerusalem from captivity probably did it afraid. They probably did it not real certain, but they did know the character of God and trust that he is faithful, and that enabled them to go forward in the power of the Spirit. That was the first step in their germination. They had to respond to that rousing, to that prompting, and it's the same way for us today. We have to respond to the voice of the Spirit when he's speaking to us. We've got to say yes to that rousing. What's the next step in their germination before they can sprout forth in a small beginning? That is in... Ezra chapter 2, here, verse 68. After they had arrived at the Lord's house in Jerusalem, so at the Lord's house means like at the ruins, the place where the temple was before, some of the family heads gave freewill offerings for the house of God 
in order to have it rebuilt on its original site. Based on what they could give, they gave 61,000 gold coins, 6,250 pounds of silver, and 100 priestly garments to the treasury for the project. So their next step in the germination was they gave offerings for the rebuilding of God's house. Just as the Exodus generation had done after they left Egypt. They had those treasures that they had taken from Egypt and they gave offerings to Moses to, re to build the tabernacle in the first place. These returned exiles also gave gifts freely. They did this not under compulsion, but according to their abilities, just like it says, based on what they could give, they gave freely from that. And God himself had made them able to do this. He is the one that equipped them to even be able to give these gifts in the first place. He had the people of the region give them things. And also, it seems that during the time of their Babylonian captivity, they had some degree of autonomy. They were able to build some amount of goods and wealth for themselves. And that was all because God had been merciful to them. Even when they were in captivity, he had shown them mercy and gave them the ability to do this. You're probably getting the conclusion I'm trying to draw here. God also gives us gifts, and I'm not primarily talking about money. He gives us gifts that we are blessed to freely offer back to him. Through Holy Spirit, we are all gifted for the building up of the body, for the building of a dwelling place for the presence of the Lord. When you offer the gifts that he puts into you, you yourself, in turn, become a gift back to the church for its building up, for its edification. You are a functioning part of the body that's being built up into maturity and fullness. So you're a part of that that builds itself up, and you are also built up in that process with your brothers and sisters. It's like the church just constantly folds in on itself and gets larger and larger and is ever expanding in its fullness and in its maturity. You are a living stone in the new temple that declares his glory here on earth, and you get to contribute to that expansion. You get to contribute to the declaration getting louder and louder and louder that Jesus is king and that his kingdom has come. That is you. You are the living sacrifice. You're the offering that's pleasing to God. With all of that in view, why not respond to his prompting when he prompts you to his grace, to his mercy, to his love? What else are we going to say but yes? Not out of performance and not out of compulsion, because that's not going to get you very far. That's just going to burn you out and be miserable. Don't do that. But according to the ability that he has given you, trusting that all you need to be fully equipped has already been supplied, because it has. He has made you able. Freely he has given to you, and you give freely. So the narrative goes on. These are their germination steps. In chapter 3, it says that the temple foundations are finished. Hallelujah. And there's a celebration. They've made it through germination. And this little small beginning has sprouted up from the ground. There's these temple foundations. And the people were shouting joyfully. Some of them were weeping because of how underwhelming this was compared to the temple that had been destroyed, which is another sermon for another day. Some people were not all that jazzed. But anyway, this made a lot of noise. And there's this one really short, important sentence that says, 
It says, this great sound was heard by the people far away. It was heard by their neighbors. Other people in the region had taken notice of this small beginning, and they sought to sabotage it immediately. Opposition came for those who had done all of this stuff in faith, who had followed the Lord and responded to him. Opposition came for them. There's an important principle in this as well. Even when God prompts you to do something and you respond to the moving of Holy Spirit, there are no guarantees that you won't encounter a challenge. That doesn't offer you, that doesn't mean like, oh, obviously this is going to be easy. That's often not the case. Really, most of the time, it's not the case at all. It's almost like the enemy hears the sound of your small beginning breaking forth. And he just wants to come in at whatever means he can find and just cut that right off so that it it can't grow anymore. He hears that sound and just wants to squash it. This can be so tough for people. And in my experience, this is what it looks like. There's something that I need to do, and I'm really afraid to do it. But I know, I have this nagging sense that I am supposed to do this thing. And so... I step out and I do the thing, and I don't die. (laughs) And I'm amazed. And then maybe I do the thing again, and I still don't die. And just about the time where I'm thinking, I think I'm all right. I think maybe this is going to turn out okay. A setback comes. There's some sort of opposition I encounter. And it's like I can repeat this process a million times and never get it. But the thing is that those setbacks don't negate what God has begun. We have to remember that. So whether this can happen in ministry, it can happen in your personal life, I'm sure you can see all kinds of areas. Maybe when you step out in ministry, you encounter some really unjust, nasty criticism. And it just feels like such a wound because you're so vulnerable. Or maybe someone openly opposes you and just makes it very known, and you're like, oh my goodness, am I even supposed to? What am I even doing? Maybe those things happen. Or in your personal life, you begin to heal from a past, the past that we all have. You begin to heal from things that have happened, and you uh, are led by the Holy Spirit to set some wise boundaries. And then you begin to experience the freedom and the growth that comes from setting those boundaries. But then someone comes and challenges those. And in that moment, you have to make a decision. Am I going to hold this? Or am I going to go back to captivity? Am I going to go back to what was familiar to me? Don't lose heart when you encounter opposition. It's easy to say, God, what are you even doing? At least I had food in Egypt. Like, I just want to go back to captivity. At least I knew and I understood and I knew what to expect from day to day. Did you trick me? Instead of saying that, think about Jesus. Think about the example he set for us. He's baptized. The Spirit descends on him like a dove. The Father announces his pleasure in the Son. Like, he's prepared for the work of ministry in this amazing way. And then immediately he goes to the wilderness and he encounters opposition, but he overcomes it. He overcomes it and he leads the way for us to do the same. When we meet the opposition of the enemy, we can overcome it as well. And if we back up in Zechariah from verse 410, this just always gets me and it's 
such a matter of encouragement to me when I feel like, what in the world am I even doing? I really like to focus on this. Backing up to verse 6. So he answered me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. What are you, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring out the capstone accompanied by shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Zerubbabel's hand have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. For who despises the day of small things? These seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the ceremonial stone in Zerubbabel's hand. So how do these things happen? How do our small beginnings become completed? Not by strength, not by might, not by the ways the world says, but it is by the Lord's Spirit. So you have set out, you've embarked, you've said yes, you've given your gifts to the Lord, and now you've encountered a mountain. Something that you recognize you cannot move in your own strength. Well, that's good. Now you're just positioned to realize true strength, which doesn't come from yourself. It comes from the Lord, not the flesh. So even though it seemed impossible, the angel says there will be rejoicing when the hands of Zerubbabel lay the ceremonial stone. So the ceremonial stone is the last stone to be placed to finish the project. What an awesome picture that would have been as these people who have encountered all this opposition, and now Zechariah is telling them, look at these foundations and imagine that Zerubbabel, the one that started this, is going to lay the ceremonial stone. That is going to happen. That's such a powerful picture for the people that were there looking at these foundations. So take heart and commit your work to the Lord when you encounter opposition. You know, he sees you. He sees you in your germination stages when you are faithful and when you say yes to him. And you begin to open up. He sees you when you give back to him. And you just say, this is all yours anyway, Lord. I want to go forward with you. And like those are so precious to him. Those yeses, he is not going to abandon you. Those are precious. Those things between you and him. So after the foundations are laid, there's a 20-year interruption um, before the temple is finished. That's a long time. And that's the period of time that Zechariah was speaking into here. So he was speaking into that 20-year interruption. But eventually, uh, King Darius issues a decree for the work to be finished and for it to be financed from the royal treasury. So the temple is finished in the power of the Spirit. The Lord fulfills what he said he was going to do. And I'm sure that was amazing. To see that, I mean, because it's a lot of prophecy takes place and it's like a long time before it's fulfilled. Maybe a generation or whatever dies. But these people, it's like they heard that and then they saw the fulfillment of it. That's pretty cool. That must have been awesome to see the completion. Happily ever after, right? What happens next? The next thing that happens is that the returned exiles, they had forsaken their relationship with God the God that delivered them, and they had intermarried with the Canaanites that were in the region. Probably what happened is when the exiles returned, there were more men than women. 
And so in their own wisdom, they had chosen wives for themselves. They had intermarried with the people of the region, which they were not supposed to do. It pulls their devotion away to foreign gods and stuff like that that they're not supposed to get into. So they had chosen what they thought was best rather than trusting the Lord. There's another important principle in this. Even after this amazing victory of erecting the temple, building the house of God again, no matter how much you succeed in your doing for the Lord, never forget that what matters most is your being with him. That is what is foundational, your devotion to him, you and him. No matter how well you respond, how well you offer your gifts, how well you build things for the Lord, at the end of the day, you are his child and he is your father and that's it. Like Those two basic elements. He's not after what he can get from you. He already has it all. What he wants is you. That's what he loves. He loves you. He wants you, all of you. Don't ever forget to just sit at his feet and love him. He loves you. Don't neglect that one-to-one devotion and relationship for him in pursuit of doing things for him. That's what the people did here. As that thing was being built, they were making these decisions to just go off and do their own thing. And it led them astray. It's important, I think, to keep everything that we do for the Lord in perspective. Because sometimes when you're stepping out in faith and you're doing stuff for the Lord, that can just like totally fill your vision. And that's all you see. And you're just like, this is the coup de grace. This is everything. What I am doing right here, it can become very overwhelming. Like if I'm not careful, I can just get tunnel vision on CCF, 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 and totally forget about God does stuff everywhere. He's building things all over the world. So keep things in perspective. Whatever you contribute, you are only a part of the work that's being done across the ages. There's only one that's ever done it all, and that's Jesus. You're not going to do it all. Jesus is the only one who's done that. Even if you are Billy Graham, you're ultimately contributing to a larger whole rather than building your own thing. Um. One time, when I was in a particularly intense season of prayers, like one of the first ones I ever experienced, God had me praying for the church, for her to be built up and prepared for him and all these different things. And as I was praying in my own living room, I got like a vision, like a picture in my mind. And it was of a woman doing the same thing I was doing. She was also praying She was praying for the church. She was just in this passionate place of intense prayer. And the difference between her and I was she looked like she was from the 1950s. The clothing that she was wearing and the room that she was in looked like it was from the 50s. And instantly, in that moment, I realized the Lord is like, look at the larger work that you're participating in. Like, this is the work of the church. The people across the ages, time and places, offering all their prayers to me. And I am building this thing, and you are participating in it. I was like, wow, what a, what a picture of what it looks like to keep things in perspective. It's not just our building projects that matter. It's just what God's doing everywhere, and we get to be a part of that. But it's all his. It's always his. It's not ours. And uh, as I was looking into this, because I really got stuck on that idea of perspective. I came across an awesome quote 
And it's kind of long, but I'm going to read the whole thing because it's, it's all really good. It's from um, McLaren's Exposition on Scripture, which is a commentary that's really well-known and common and that I read frequently while I'm sermon prepping. And it has to do with this element of perspective. He says, It is the fate of most of us to inherit unfinished work from our predecessors and to bequeath the like to our successors. And in one aspect, all human work is unfinished as being but a fragment of the fulfillment of the mighty purpose which runs through all the ages. Yet some are more happy than others in that they see an approximate completion of their work. But whether it be so or not, our task is to do the little we can do and leave the rest with God, sure that he will work all the fragments into a perfect whole and content to do the smallest bit of service for him. Few of us are strong enough to do separate building. We are like coral insects whose reef is one, though its makers are millions. Zerubbabel finished his task, but its end was but a new beginning of an order of things of which he did not see the end. There are no beginnings or endings, properly speaking, in human affairs, but all is one unbroken flow. One man only has made a real new beginning, and that is Jesus Christ. And he only will really carry his work to its very last issues. He is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. He is the foundation of the true temple, and he is also the headstone of the corner, the foundation on which all rests, the apex to which all runs up. When he begins, he will also make an end. That's our Jesus. That's the Jesus that we worship, that we know. He's the one that did it all. You're never going to suffer more than him. You're never going to build something bigger than him. He's the one who does it all, the beginning and the end. And so I just want you to keep in mind, the Lord prompts you in the spirit, say yes to him. Give back to him what he's given to you. And never, ever, ever forget that he just loves you and that you're his that you're precious, that your yeses are precious to him. And don't ever forget your devotion to him because that's, that's your heartbeat. It's the most important thing that all of us have. So now I'm going to go um, into prayer here to finish up the sermon. And uh, after that, Jonathan is going to come up and he is going to play one more worship song. And during that time, we just want to give you an opportunity to respond. Tabitha and I are going to be up here to pray with you. You know, if the Lord is stirring you up, if there's some small beginning that you want to embark on, if you're in some stage of germination and you just like someone to come alongside you and agree with you and support you in prayer on that, we would love to do that with you today. So we'll be up here during the music time. If you'd like to come up, please feel free. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for all of the things that you make possible by your word and by your power. We thank you that our yeses, that our prayers in the secret place is so precious to you. Thank you that you love us, that you know us fully, and you see us all the time. The fellowship we have with you is so, so precious. And Lord, help us as you prompt us to say yes to you. And to build things in your power, not in performance, not in compulsion, 
but giving freely because you've given to us, Lord. Thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you that you build your church. Thank you that we get to be a part of that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.